Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Rescue Summer Mindset Podcast. I'm Cody Wright. This is episode seven, I believe, and I'm going to shoot going forward for three episodes per week. Most likely, it's going to keep on the Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday release dates. And I'm going to shoot to have Wednesdays be my kind of a free form episode where I go through and answer random questions that I get through Instagram or email or in person. And then I'll also kind of ramble off some of the stuff I'm doing in my training and just random updates about the the Rescue Summer Mindset. With that said, I posted a little question box on my Instagram story on Monday and I got a bunch of questions and I'm going to go through and answer a couple of them right now. One of them is kind of longer, so I, I figured I'd dedicate most of the, this portion of the episode to answering that question and then kind of fill in the rest with some of the easier to answer questions. So the biggest question I got, and I got it from a few people, was what is it like, what is a day in, in the life like as a rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard? So I'm going to walk you through that for the next maybe eight or ten minutes. And let me start by saying there are, I guess, two typical days you'd experience as a operational rescue swimmer. And just know that it kind of varies from air station to air station. Some air stations have different schedules than others. Some air stations do different maintenance in their shops. So they have to orient their day around that in a different way. Um, So I'm going to be basing everything off of my experience. And I was stationed in at air station Detroit. So this air station is one of the smaller ones in the Coast Guard we had at the time. Five, I think we had five, five to six helicopters. And they're the 65s, the, the smaller orange helicopters, as opposed as opposed to the uh, the 60s, which are a lot bigger. They're, they look like the Blackhawks. So with such a small air station and a relatively small amount of aircraft, we didn't have a ton of maintenance. So I was told that, and it seemed like a lot of other guys can correlate this, that we had a lighter workload compared to some of the bigger air stations like Air Station Clearwater in Clearwater, Florida, or Air Station Kodiak in Alaska, or Barber's Point in, in Hawaii. So this would so the first type of day is gonna be just a regular work day. So typically there are well so we had about 12 to 14 rescue swimmers at the unit. And at any given time, I would say 10 to 12 of those guys are going to be able to fly or on flight status where they're not injured or they don't have something that prevents them from flying. So you'll have a duty rotation. So you'll have those guys standing 24 hour duty. So I'm going to, this is the first day and it's going to be a regular work day where you're not standing duty. So typically we have to get to work around, I think it was like 7.30. So I lived about a half an hour away from the air station. So I'd wake up probably around like six and then I'd just kind of get some coffee and a little breakfast and then I'd drive into work. And when you get into work, there is typically a big air station meeting. So, and this varies from air station to air station. So this is just based on my experience. But we'd all meet up, and 
the whole air station would kind of each head of each respective department would go over kind of what they're doing that day, what kind of flights were going going on that day. So typically there's, depending on the air station, there's anywhere from two to like probably eight to ten training flights in any given day. So a training flight could be anything from pilots going out to work on their their flight minimums where they're just doing touch and goes at the airport to or you could be doing hoisting with a small boat station or you could be doing swimmer ops where we go out and and practice various swimmer life-saving procedures so you go out and do some free falls jump in the water with a either a a dummy or another rescue swimmer that would come with you so for today, we'll do we'll say that I had a, a flight in the afternoon. So I I went to this meeting. The department heads go over everything. They tell you the flights, and then you all go back to your your department. So the swimmer shop would go back, and we'd meet up and kind of have a little meeting, and we'd go over what kind of maintenance we'd be doing that day. So like I said, any given day in the swimmer shop, we'd have maybe on average five to ten guys working, and we'd be kind of going over in our second meeting kind of what we'd be doing for that day so we'd have some swimmers doing maintenance so they'd be inspecting or maintaining servicing any life saving equipment so typically we will inspect and inflate the life rafts on the helicopter the the personal flotation devices inspect the flares we do a lot of all the life-saving equipment so we'd inspect it and do whatever we have to do for that we'd have some swimmers working on the computers, doing whatever jobs they were, they've were they been working on. So sometimes we'd have projects in the, in the shop that they'd be working on. Other guys would be working on getting EMT training together. And then a couple other guys would either be going out on morning flights or if they're going out on afternoon flights, they would spend the morning um, working out, doing PT and running and getting everything in while they can. So... We'll say on this day, I had an afternoon flight. So typically I would spend the first couple hours working in the shop. So I'd help out with maintenance. Sometimes the air station has these big meetings where we get together and do air station training. Could be doing that. A lot of times that was in the morning. So we'd you could find yourself doing that, meeting with the pilots, the flight mechanics, going over safety procedures, crew resource management, all that stuff. And there's a lot of training that there's a ton of training that you do. I'm not going to go over it all, but that's just something you might be doing on any given day. So we, I'd spend those couple hours working, and then I guess it'd be around ten or ten thirty, and then I'd get to go work out. So I'd work out from probably like ten forty-five to around twelve. So you get a ton of time to get whatever you have to get in. So a lot of times I'd lift some weights, do PT, or or go for a run. And depending on the day, you're going to work out with your shop, or if you're on a flight in the afternoon like I am for this day, you're probably working out alone just because everyone else is working, and they're just letting you break so you can get your PT in before, before you go out. So I'd spend that time working out, and then around 12, 12.30 or so, I'd finish the workout, eat some food, and then start getting ready for my flight. So... Typically, you meet up about 45 minutes to half an hour with your pilots and flight mechanic to go over a 
flight brief. So you talk about what you're going to do on the flight, any specific training that someone on the plane might want to get. So pilots, a lot of times, would have to work on certain flight minimums that they have to get. Maybe they have to hoist a rescue swimmer to a to a boat, or maybe they have to get a couple rescue swimmer free fall deployments. So they have a bunch of checklists they have to go through and minimums they have to meet each quarter basically or it might be every six months to maintain their their qualification their pilot qualification and swimmers have the same thing so swimmers have to get a certain amount of free fall deployment certain amount of hoist to the water with various devices that we use so if i needed a certain type of deployment that flight i would tell my pilot and then we'd see if we could work it into the flight so after that meeting typically you get your last minute kind of prep for the flight done so i would go back to the locker room grab all my swimmer gear if i'm going out on a flight where we're going to be doing swimmer ops and we'll say for for this day we were doing swimmer ops i would grab my all my equipment so my fins my mask and snorkel and then i depending on the water temperature i'd either put a dry suit on or i'd put my wetsuit on and i think if the water temperature is above 55 degrees or 60 degrees, I can't remember, we would be allowed to wear wetsuits. If it was below that, we'd have to wear dry suits. And there's a ton of different reasons for that. And I'm not going to go over them, but typically you're going to be wearing a dry suit, which is really hot and uncomfortable, but it will save your life if you end up in the water for a long period of time. And in Detroit, we would a lot of, a lot of times we'd be doing We'd be doing training either in Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, or Lake St. Clair. And generally, those lakes stay pretty cold for most of the year, unless you kind of get into the mid to late summer, when that's kind of the wetsuit time for us. And swimming in wetsuits is way better. So I get all my gear, I get it to the plane. We would go through the last second checks on the plane. So you kind of do a walk around, make sure nothing's looking Uh, funny on the plane pilots hop in start the plane and i would hop in kind of wait for them to do all their checks after they start the helo and then taxi out and take off so for this training flight we would maybe go out for a couple hours do some hoist maybe hoist with a a coast guard small boat do some free fall deployments to the water simulated rescues and then we fly back and depending on how Many people are in the helicopter. How many hoists you do, will that, that will determine how long the flight is. So typically, if you're hoisting a lot, or well, not hoisting a lot, but doing a lot of hovering, you're going to have a relatively short flight because it takes more fuel to keep the helicopter in a hover. So after about an hour and a half of training, we head back, land at the air station, and it's probably around three forty-five or four o'clock at this point. So. The swimmer shop is typically finishing up maintenance or finishing up their workout for the day and starting to head home. And basically what I would do is help the the crew turn around the plane or basically refuel the plane and clean it up to get it ready for another flight or put it away for the, for the night. So that would probably take another 45 minutes to an hour depending on what's required of the based on what we did that flight. So sometimes you'd have to wash a helicopter. Sometimes 
you have to rinse it out. And if it's a saltwater unit, you have to go in there and rinse out the whole deck and get all the salt off. You got to clean off all your equipment, all your, get all the salt off your equipment. But luckily in Detroit, it was all freshwater. So the turnarounds for the plane were relatively fast. So that would be a typical non-duty day. So the other kind of day would be a day where you're standing 24-hour duty. And again, this varies from air station to air station. But at Air Station Detroit, we would start our duty days at 345 or 1545 military time. So you get the morning off into the early afternoon. And around 345, you have to be at work, have your gear ready, and then you go up and meet with your crew. So you'd have a a duty crew. So you'd have two pilots and a flight mechanic and a swimmer. So you'd meet up upstairs, kind of where the pilots usually meet, go over what the previous duty crew was up to for their 24 hours duty. So if they were on a search and rescue case or, <coughs> excuse me, or one was pending, they would let you know and you kind of know what to get ready for. Sometimes you go up there and there'd be nothing going on. So you just kind of go through a quick pre pre-flight brief and then you kind of break and go about your evening so typically i'd on any given day i would get into work to go to the meeting and then right after that i would right after the meeting broke i'd make sure all my gear was ready i'd inspect the the plane or the helicopter and then i'd break and go get a workout in so i work out from like 4 30 to maybe 6 or 6.15. And around that time, about the time you're finishing up, usually there's an evening flight kind of getting ready to go out. So sometimes they would do evening duty flights where the whole crew would go out and do just a typical training flight. A lot of times they wouldn't take the swimmer for that. So the pilots would just go out and fly around the the airstrip and get their minimums done for just kind of touch and goes. And so if I wasn't needed for the flight, I would just kind of finish up, eat dinner, and then I'd kind of hang out and stand by for the, for the flight to get back so I could help them turn the plane around. And usually the night flight would get back around nine or 10 o'clock. And it all depends on what time of year it is. So in the summer, if the pilots want to get night flights in you have to wait till the sun actually sets so they might not get back from a flight until like 10 o'clock because the sun didn't set until eight something in the winter sunsets around five or so the night flight takes off then gets back around seven so it's a little earlier so summer nights kind of would drag a little longer and you have to be up a little later just because to wait for the flight to get back so the flight would get back and we'd turn the plane around and then typically I'd go to bed and then wake up the next morning and you're on duty until 3.45 that afternoon. So all you're doing all day is you typically would help your shop out. All the day workers who aren't on duty, you'd help them out a bit with maintenance. And then you'd kind of take it easy and just kind of wait for a, a case to go to go off. So if the SAR alarm went off at any time during that day or at night, you would have to wake up, have your gear ready and be ready to get to the helicopter in anywhere from five to 20 minutes, depending on on the case and what the status of the plane is and whether we had to meet again to brief the flight or not.
And those are pretty much like two typical days for a rescue swimmer. In Detroit, our summers were really busy. We would have a lot of cases every day. And we had a another auxiliary air station in Muskegon, Michigan. So we would send, we'd have at any given time two swimmers who were basically living out there for the summer. We do two week rotations at the time. So every two weeks, a new swimmer would go out there and stay two weeks there. And, <coughs> excuse me, they would be standing by for any search and rescue on Lake Michigan. So we'd cover basically from around Ludington, Michigan, which is a couple hours north of Muskegon. So this is kind of like the middle part of the state or the middle part of the state on, on the lake down to the southern side of Lake Michigan. And we cover all the way over to Chicago sometimes. And it just depend on, depended on what the air, other air station in Traverse City was doing and what the what the search and rescue volume was like for that given day. So in Detroit, this summers, we would be two down, two swimmers down, and then we'd have other swimmers working on maintenance, other swimmers flying. So we typically wouldn't have many guys working in the shop. So whoever was working in the shop was doing a lot of maintenance, not a lot of flying. But at any given time, you could be called to fly. So it was just really random and hectic, but you stayed busy. So it, it went by fast. Other than that, that's a typical day, or that was a typical day for me. And like I said, it varies a lot from air station to air station. But generally, that's kind of what you'd be doing. And the maintenance load would vary. The amount of time you get to work out would vary just based on the flight schedule and what the primary kind of mission of that air station is. So I'm going to end the day in the life question here. And if there's something that I mentioned that kind of like piqued your interest or there's something that I didn't mention that you thought swimmers do, just send me a DM, email, and I'll acknowledge that I saw it, answer it, or, or I'll definitely do that. And then I'll probably go back onto another episode and kind of talk about it just so it's clear. So I'm going to move on to the next question. And this one's pretty simple, but necessary. And that question is, how do I increase my push-up and pull-up maximums? So, how do I do more push-ups and pull-ups? And this is pretty easy for me to answer now because I've kind of gone through it. I struggled through it. When I first was getting ready to join the Coast Guard, I could only do roughly 30, a little over 30 push-ups. And then, I think, two to three pull-ups and chin-ups. And the requirements for the Coast Guard... The airman test at the time were 50 push-ups, 60 sit-ups, 5 pull-ups, 5 chin-ups. And I was only able to meet the sit-up requirement. I could do more than 60 sit-ups. So I started doing a ton of like internet research. And at the time, there wasn't a ton of stuff online. There was pretty much... I don't even know if Instagram was around at the time. I definitely didn't have one. And I don't think there was anyone talking about it on Instagram. And there weren't many websites that were helpful. So I gathered what I could and I basically put up and came together with some workouts that eventually worked for me. So what I started doing was finding workouts that allowed me to do a high volume of PT exercises 
in a really relatively short amount of time. So what that means is you're basically you're wanting to break up a workout. So we'll say it's almost like a you could do a push up pull up pyramid. So say we start at you do one pull up one pu- or one pull up five push ups, and then after you do that, you do two pull ups ten push ups. Then you do three pull ups fifteen push ups. And I think when I was starting out, I would do that up to maybe four pull-ups or five pull-ups. Definitely not five because I couldn't even do five. So it must have been three or four. So it was like very low volume. But I would do that and then I'd take a rest and then I'd do that same thing again. And it wouldn't even take that long. That would take like maybe 10 minutes or 12 minutes. But it would it would smoke me. I would be so tired. And I basically kept doing variations of that for a few months and eventually I was able to kind of get my minimums up or get my volume up and I was eventually able to hit 50 push-ups and five pull-ups five chin-ups and now I can do way more than those those requirements and throughout my entire time in the Coast Guard I could do way more but it took me a while to build up that volume and that's the thing it just takes a lot of dedication and you got to be careful not to overdo it you could end up injuring yourself. You can injure, injure your shoulders, elbow, doing a lot of push-ups or a lot of volume when your body's not used to it. So it really takes a, cons- an, a really concerted effort to avoid injury and increase your 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 volume at, a, at the right amount that's most beneficial to you. So if you're not able to do more than 20 push-ups, you should never be doing these huge workouts that require you to do 200 push-ups in any given time because you're just going to wear down your body too fast and your muscles and ligaments aren't really and joints aren't kind of ready for that for that volume so just be smart with it and if you have questions just send me a dm or email and i'll be happy to answer i get a lot of questions about this stuff and i i try to answer every single one so i'm going to move on to the last question of the day and this is a question i get a lot of times from students prepping for buds and that question is how do I practice the 50 meter underwater swim so I totally get the the stress behind trying to find a way to practice the 50 meter underwater swim it's it's really intimidating but I don't ever recommend practicing the 50 meter underwater swim by doing 50 meter underwaters and that's what a lot of people think they should be doing is getting in the pool and if the logic is if you can do a 50 meter underwater swim a couple times in a workout, then you're definitely going to be able to do it at buds. And I totally get that, but it's very dangerous to do 50 meters, 50 meters underwater. So from a safety standpoint and a longevity standpoint, you don't want to be putting your body through more than it has to go through over a long period of time because you're going to end up getting injured or you're increasing your, your likelihood of injury. Or in this case, even death. It's It happens more often than you think people die doing hypoxic training. So what I would say, what you need to be doing to get better or to improve your likelihood of getting through a 50 meter underwater is practicing your water confidence and specifically your 25 meter underwater laps. And you're doing this by... And you're going to increase the intensity by varying the rest time so 
you might want to do a, a workout where you do 25 meter underwater sprint back on the minute. So you might only get 20 seconds rest there and you might have to do two or three at a time. So maybe you do sprint down underwater back, you get back in maybe 40, 44 seconds. You might have 20 to 16 seconds rest and that's, that's going to be very hard. So maybe back to back, but you want to be doing stuff like that. Shorter duration underwaters, but more intense. So your heart rate's going to get up high very fast and it's going to be a very hard workout, but you're not staying underwater for that long for as long a period of time as a 50 meter underwater. Another way to do it would be underwater four by 25 meter underwater with 20 second rest or 30 second rest after every 25 meters. So just go underwater 25 meters, come up, rest on the other side of the pool, wait 30 seconds, come back. You do that four to six times, depending on your your conditioning. And if you can do if you can do four by 25 meters with 30 to 40 seconds rest, you can definitely do a 50 meter underwater one time. And that's all you have to do. So be smart about it and don't put yourself in unnecessary harm because it's it's silly to, to get injured or, or possibly die doing just training for something that you're only, only going to have to do one time. So just keep that in mind and be smart. So with that said, I'm going to end the Q&A portion of the episode. And now I'm going to kind of transition into what I'm up to right now as far as my athletic life goes. So since I've been out of the Coast Guard, I've had a lot of free time and a lot of extra energy to kind of direct in other avenue towards other things and in other places. So since I moved to Boulder, I've been getting into trail running a lot. So all of half of 2017, 2018, all of 2018. And then all of last year, I was doing a ton of trail running and running up big mountains in Colorado. And that eventually led me into the world of ultra running. So I really got fascinated with these really long races. So an ultra race is anything over a marathon. So anything over 26.2 miles. And typically the shortest ultra marathon is a 50k or i think it's around 31 miles and in september of 2019 i ended up running my first 50k or first ultra marathon and i ended up doing okay i started off not really knowing what to expect and i ended up going i went out really fast and i spent the first 22 23 miles of the race in fifth place and i was feeling really really good about myself and i ended up on the last, those last like eight-ish, nine mile, eight or nine miles, I kind of hit a wall. My body just kind of stopped working. My legs stopped working. So I had to struggle through the last, the last eight miles and ended up finishing in 12th place. So there were over a hundred, I think there was over a hundred runners in the race and a 12th place finish was pretty solid. And I, it kind of got me thinking about what I could do if I really trained and put in the effort. So I ended up training for the rest of the year, rest of 2019 for more races. I signed up for the Austin marathon, which is in February, but over winter, I guess right around Christmas time. So this is about five and a half weeks ago. I ended up getting a stress fracture in my tibia. So it's like, it's definitely sidelined me and I've been 
out of running for the past six weeks, but in the next week or so, I'm hoping to start running again, and I had to pull out of the Austin Marathon, so I'm not doing that anymore, but I am am signed up for this race called the Keys 50, so it's a 50-mile race in the Florida Keys, and it races from Marathon, Florida to Key West, and that's in mid-May of this year, so it's going to be really hot, but I think really fun. And I'm really pumped. So I'm going to get training for that once I'm healthy. And I'll keep doing updates through this podcast. If you're interested, you can, if you're interested in running or want to know more about that, send me a DM. Or if you're an ultra runner and want to just talk about it, send me a DM and we can talk. I also signed up for a race in August called the Pikes Peak Marathon. And it's this famous marathon in the United States where you run up a 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado called Pikes Peak. So it's a, it's 26.2 miles, 13.1 up, 13.1 down. And it's 7,000 feet or roughly 7,000 feet of elevation gain in that time. So I'm really excited for that. It's going to be cool. And I'll definitely keep you updated on that. I'll keep talking about my training and how that's going. And I think that's pretty much it for this episode. I'm going to sign off now and I will be posting a new episode where I break down the next couple chapters of my book on Thursday morning. So with that said, I'll talk to you then.